You know when you say somebody's the real deal? This guy is the real deal. I won't have to explain. He'll be able to in about five minutes of just passion oozing from him um, and his desire to uh, reach the world, uh, literally, uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so excited that uh, he could be here. Uh, he's going to be on the run right after service is over, so you'll get a little bit of time with him. Second service is not going to. Um, this man is busy, and we are so blessed that he could be with us this morning. Would you just give a warm Calvary Chapel welcome to Wes Bentley as he comes here this morning. Thanks, Wes. Well, folks, uh, blessed to be here this morning to have the opportunity to share with you, to give you a little bit of an understanding. We have been involved in the longest-running civil war in Africa, the war in southern Sudan. In the last 61 years of the nation, we've had over 40 years of declared war, but there's almost been no time that we have not been at war in the South Sudan or fighting in some part of the country. About 20 years ago, we became the official training arm for the South Sudan Army of training all pastors and chaplains for their military. And it's not like we think of chaplains here in America, folks. These are frontline combat chaplains. They're all armed. They all go into battle. And I know that seems a little bit strange right now, but as I get in the message, I think that you'll understand it a little bit better. Uh, we have a very intense Bible school. We get our guys up at five o'clock in the morning and we run them nine miles. Uh, we take them straight up a mountain, straight down a mountain, and then we have eight hours of class time and two and a half hours of study time daily. We only feed the guys two meals a day of beans and corn maize. We give them meat about once every two weeks and vegetables occasionally. And the reason we do that is isn't because we can't afford to feed them better, but if we don't train them hard, they will not survive. Once they graduate, they're deployed to forward operation units where we go into heavy combat conditions, and, uh, and it's been a very, very severe time in the South Sudan. It's considered one of the five most dangerous countries in the world today. Uh, we used to be just fighting one army, the Radical Islamic Army of Northern Sudan. Uh, we are currently fighting five different armies, and there's 148 different rebel groups that are operating in the South Sudan today. It's an extremely dangerous nation. We're going to start by showing you a couple slides here, folks, so that you get a little bit of an understanding of the ministry. If we go ahead and bring that first one up here, we'll show it to you in just a second. Okay, this is the outside of our base here. This is the Chaplain's Compound in South Sudan. Uh, we've actually designed these walls to stop 50 caliber machine gun bullets, which for those of you who are not familiar with how powerful that is, it'll blow a man right in half. And uh, next one. This is just kind of another uh, angle of, the, of our, our base in South Sudan. Next one. Uh, these are uh, uh, about 200 of our 500 chaplains. Uh, we've now extended the front towers there, but that's uh, several years old. Next one. Uh, this is our church, uh, Calvary Chapel Cushion Nimely. Uh, it holds 1,200 people. We have three services. Uh, the first is in English, the second is in Arabic, and the third is in Mahdi, which is a local dialect. And uh, that's just for the adults. We have over 1,200 children on Sunday. Next one. Uh, this is a completely different facility. This is in northern Uganda. It's a school that will open up in February of this uh, coming year, and it's going to hold 700 children. And once again, the walls are designed to protect them from uh, radical Islam. Next one. Uh, this is part of the school. Next one. A little bit more different angle of the school. Next one. And uh, again, another angle of the school. Next one. 
Uh, this is a little bit more difficult to explain, folks. In northern Uganda, uh, rebel groups would capture uh, families, and often they would force the wife to kill their own husband. Uh, they would give them a machete and tell them to kill their husband. If they refused, they said, if you don't kill your husband, we're going to kill all your children. And wives would kill their husbands. One of the things we do is we have a farm called Canaan Farm, and we have about 150 families there. Every single family has had to murder someone within their family. And it's a place of healing, and we uh, build houses for these ladies. Uh, now, this doesn't look like much by American standards. They're used to living in a mud hut. It costs us about four to $5,000 to build one of these. But every one of these women have become healed. They're walking with Christ, and they're actually doing very, very well today. Next one. And this is the last one. This is the president of Southern Sudan, uh, Sevakil. He came to our compound in February of this last year. Uh, he's actually sitting in front of our house on my compound, mine and my wife Vicky's. And he came there and he said, there's only one organization that's changing our nation and it's far-reaching ministries. And uh, I don't agree with that, folks. There's a lot of great people there doing great work, but I appreciate the favor that we had. A month ago, the vice president of the nation showed up. And again, uh, we have had great favor. This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. And I I want to share with you folks that um, I think there's a great misconception within the body of Christ. I think that most of us as believers understand that salvation is a free gift of God. We get that. But what a lot of believers really do not understand is that the rewards of heaven are earned. And if you never do anything for Christ in this life, why do you expect great treasure on the other side of eternity? The Bible says in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But it doesn't say they're all mansions. It says there's many mansions. I've often wondered how many one-bedroom flats or two-bedroom condos are up there. And I think it's strange to think that if we never do anything for Christ, we expect these great rewards on the other side of eternity. With believers, I think there's a part of our faith that we're missing today. As Christians, many of us become born again, and we begin to travel what I would call the narrow road. But there's a road that I think that many of us are missing, and I would call it the road to Damascus. When Saul was on the road to Damascus, where he would encounter and meet Jesus Christ and would become Paul the Apostle, it would forever change his life. He would never, ever be the same man again. I think that for many of us, we have become born again, but we're missing what I would call the road to Damascus experience, where Christ has entered in us and we are lost in a world of service. Our lives literally do not belong to us anymore. And I want to start by reading you a portion of Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. In Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings 
kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house. He entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Now folks, one of the things that we need to understand here is a lot of people misunderstand what happened in Paul's life at this time. A lot of us think this is when he started his public ministry, but this is not what happened at all. For the next 13 years, Paul the Apostle will disappear. We don't really know much about what he was doing during that time. We know for a time that he was in Arabia, but beyond that we know almost nothing about his life. The scripture is strangely quiet. When he would start his public ministry, he would only have 22 years of public ministry. When he writes the second book of Corinthians, he's 11 years into his ministry, and he's got another 11 years before he's going to be martyred for his faith. But what was ever happening, God was putting tremendously deep roots into Paul's life. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes about the suffering that he went through. And he says, five times I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from Gentiles, in danger from Jews, in danger of the city, in danger of the country, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides all these other things, I face daily my pressure and my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul tells us that in the first 11 years of his ministry that he has been beaten nine times severely for the gospel. And folks, the reason the Jews would give you 40 lashes minus one, meaning 39 lashes, is they used a whip called the cat nine tails. It had a long rod with nine to 12 pieces of leather that hung down from it. Within the leather, there was pieces of metal, pieces of shell, and pieces of bone. And when you would hit someone on the back and it would grab the flesh, it would literally tear it right out of your back. Most men did not survive 40 lashes. Not all. Some, but most of them would survive 39. And again, not all would survive 39, folks. It just kind of depends on a man's strength. But they literally learned to beat a man within an inch of his life. And Paul says that five times that he received this. I think most people going to the mission field being once or twice might see it as a sign of suffering for the gospel. But by the third or fourth time, I think most people would question Christ's love for them. Or are they in the will of God? And yet Paul says of his life, I count my life worth nothing if only I might finish the race which God has set before me. See, Paul was lost in a world of service. His life literally did not belong to him anymore. He understood that he was to be a man that was wholly given to the things of the gospel. He was lost in Christ, and his passion was the things of the kingdom, folks. And this is really missing within the church today. One of the reasons we're not very effective for the gospel is we're so trying so hard to fit into this world. And folks, we were never supposed to fit in this world. When the Bible talks about the church, it says that we are a holy people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, a people that does not fit into this world. We're not supposed to be like the world. We are set apart for the gospel. And see, one of the things I think that many of us are missing in our own personal walks with the Lord is what I would call the road to Damascus experience. I think about my own road to Damascus experience, folks. You know, I had uh, lied about my age when I was in the 10th grade and joined the United States Marine Corps. I volunteered for combat duty in Vietnam, and I was a pretty highly trained soldier, folks. I was deployed to an amphibious raider battalion. Uh, 
Uh, I trained at the Navy SEAL base, the Army Ranger base, and we had our own special forces training. I was a competitive shooter for the Marines. I used to travel around, shoot battalion and division matches. I was what was called a PMI, Primary Marksmanship Instructor. And uh, I was so good with weapons, my coach actually said to me one time, he goes, Wes, I think that you could shoot the Olympics. Now, I never wanted to shoot the Olympics. I just wanted to shoot other people. So I never really had any, pro any, any thought about going down that road there. But I remember that when I came to Christ, folks, it would absolutely revolutionize my life. My brother Rick, and I'm the oldest of three boys, or four boys, and I got three brothers. And I remember that when I, before I became a believer, or after I became a believer, he told my mom many years later, he said, you know, Mom, he goes, when Wes joined the Marine Corps, he goes, I did not want him to ever come back again. He goes, he was the meanest man I have ever met in my life. He goes, when he would fight, he tried to hurt people. He was extremely cruel with his words. And folks, I don't know that it was I was trying to be so cruel, but I grew up in some rough areas, and so when I fought, I purposely tried to injure people to send a message to others, leave me alone. I just wanted to be left alone, but I was extremely cruel with my words. He said, but after he came to Christ, he goes, he changed so much, I did not want him to ever leave again. And see, this is what's supposed to happen to us. When we become believers, we're supposed to be lost in a world of service. Our lives literally do not belong to us. We no longer get our identity in who we are. You know, I think about Saul, folks. You have to realize what this man was like. He had a teacher by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel talked about Saul, and he said the hardest thing that he had for him was finding enough books for him to read. I think Paul would probably have tested a genius level. He was a brilliant man. And when we read the writings that the Lord used him to write in the Word of God, we see the brilliance of his brain of how it worked. I suspect that he had high aspirations in his life. When he was on the road to Damascus that day, you know, when you're the smartest guy there, and Paul says in the scripture in two different places that among the Pharisees, he was the most righteous of all of them. He lived a life above reproach. He, according to legalistic righteousness, he was absolutely flawless. And I suspect that he had his sights set on becoming the high priest one day. But see, when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, all of that would change in one moment. Whatever dreams he had, whatever aspirations, whatever ambitions were in his life, it all ended at that one moment that he met Christ. And this is exactly what is supposed to happen to us. When we meet Christ, we're supposed to be lost in a world of service. You know, folks, I think that when I read the scripture, so often we read it, but we don't feel like it applies to us. One of the things about being a believer is you learn to have a burden for the lost. We should literally get up and walk through the watches of the night and pray because we're burdened by those that are lost without Christ. We should feel a, 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 a very sense of urgency in reaching many people with the great hope and the great love of Christ. I think about my own road to Damascus experience, and folks, it didn't come right after I got saved. When I got saved, I began to read the Bible anywhere as much as seven, eight, nine hours a day. But the first book that I read after it was a book called Tortured for Christ, written by Richard Wombrandt. He was a very famous Romanian pastor, and he spent 14 years in prison for his faith. When I read the book, it absolutely astounded me what this man went through. I remember that when I got out of the Marine Corps a few years later, I heard that he was speaking at a very large church in Southern California. Now, it was not a Calvary Chapel, but it was an outstanding church, and the pastor of this church was one of the foremost theologians in our generation today. And I remember that when we walked in the auditorium, there's literally thousands of people there. I think there was probably between 15 and 20,000 people that attended this church there. And as Richard Wombrandt walked up to the stage, he walked up in his socks, and and the reason he did that is because when he was in prison, often they would try to get him to deny his faith, and he would refuse to do it. 
They would take him, they would lay him across the table, they would take his shoes and socks off, and they would break all the bones in his feet. And they did this on multiple occasions with him. So his feet were extremely damaged. I remember that when he got up there, he told some of the most incredible stories of persecution I'd ever heard. I had a good friend that worked for him. He's actually another Calvary Chapel pastor. And he told me, he said, you know, one time they were going to a church to speak and they got caught in a rainstorm. He said, when they went in the church, they were completely soaked. And he said, so the pastor said, quickly, Reverend Wombrat, go into my office and change. You'll be on stage in five minutes. He said, when R Richard Wombrat took his shirt off, you could see all the scars, all the marring, all the places that the bruising of the body, the skin never really quite returned to its color. But what he noticed most was on the front of his stomach down on the right-hand side was a large circle about the size of a half dollar that was black. And he looked at him and he said to him, Papa, what happened to you? He said, there was a time they were trying to get me to deny my faith and I refused to do it. So they took an iron poker and they heated it in the fire until it turned orange and they pushed it all the way through my body in the hopes of getting me to deny my faith, but I refused to do it. When he got finished, folks, I said to myself, I am going to be the last person to leave this sanctuary. I don't care if it takes two or three hours. I need to understand this man's faith. But something would happen that day, guys, that would surprise me more than anything that Richard Wombrat said. Literally, within 10 minutes of the service being over, the entire auditorium was empty. Everybody had walked out. They walked by and they said, thank you. We'll pray for you. Not one of them did pray for him. Not one of them gave him a gift for his ministry. And I said to myself, did these people not hear what I just heard? Did they not understand? Did they not perceive? I know their pastor. He is a phenomenal teacher. He rightly divides the word of God. How could they come in here and just walk out and do nothing? So I went up to Reverend Wombrandt and I said, Reverend Wombrandt, I don't know how to help, but I would at least like to help. I'd like to write a check. I said, who do I write the check to? And his wife, Sabina, said, Wes, write the check to Jesus. So I got out my checkbook and I wrote a check for $180. Now, folks, it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but at that time in my life, it was probably all that I had. And then Sabina began to talk to me and she said, you know, I spent many years in prison too. My husband spent many, but I also spent many. She goes, it was a very dark time in the history of Romania. If you were considered a threat to the state, there was no trial. An officer would write an order and they would take you out at midnight and shoot you in a firing squad. She said, we had a young girl in our cell that she was about 17 years of age and they had determined that this young girl was a threat to the state and she was to be executed that night. She said, within the cell, it was like there was a great gloom because people could not understand what this young girl had done. But all of a sudden, this young girl spoke up and she said, me and my fiance had hoped to glorify Christ in this life by being missionaries. But that is not how I shall glorify him. Tonight, I will glorify him with my death. She said the woman's faith was so dramatic, it was like a light came into the cell. She said when the guards came to take her away, there's this tiny, petite little girl, these two big bull of men, and they're marching her off to shoot her. And they can hear this young girl talking to them, and she says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in him shall never die. And they shot that young girl that night. Folks, that was over 60 years ago. But the legacy of that girl has lived on for 60 years. And that day would forever change my life. I would never be the same man again. See, I'm a soldier by trade. 
I've been in the war in Sudan for 23 straight years, folks. I have been in war 17 years longer than the Second World War started. And it has been a very, very brutal war. When I went to Africa, I did not go there to be a soldier. I went there to be a pastor, a Bible teacher, an evangelist. My wife, Vicki, was there to do the women's children's ministry. But what began to happen was the rebels began to come down and attack villages around us. One village that they hit was called Machwini, and they took 58 newborn children and they crushed their heads against children, trees. They would take all the women from the ages of nine years old and above and rape them. And they would rape them over and over and over. When they were done with them, if they did not take them into sexual slavery and they didn't kill them, they would cut their lips off of them, their noses, their ears, their breast. They wanted to bring great terror to the people and they were extremely effective about doing that. And I remember that the Lord told me, you have got to do something about this. So we began to build sanctuaries for the women and children to come in at night. When the sun would begin to set, at first you would see a trickle of women and children coming in. But by the time the sun went down, over 44,000 women and children a night were coming in looking for sanctuary. Under every tree, under every veranda, they were trying to escape the enemy. Among the South Sudan army, there are great warriors. They're extremely tenacious in battle. But often they would fight extremely hard until they realized they could not win a battle. And then they would pull back and say, live to fight another day. One of the villages that they pulled out of, we came into right after they did. The Islamic army came down and they built these huge bonfires and they picked up all the babies and the toddlers and they threw them in and they burned them alive. And when we got there, we could see the remains of the children in the ash of the fire. And the Lord told me, you have got to deal with this. So I set the men down one day and I said, guys, I want you to understand something here. It is not your job to save your life. It is your job to save their lives. We're men, they're women and children. If the enemy comes, not one of you guys is to pull off that line until we have evacuated every single woman and child. If you die, then you die. That is the role of a man. We are called to protect those that cannot protect themselves. We are called to care for those that do not have the ability to care for themselves. We know the tactic of the enemies. They don't hit hard targets. They don't come with 200 men and fight 200 men. They're cowards. They come with 200 men and they fight where there's five. So if they come with 200 men one night and there's only five of us, just know this is the day you're going to go home to meet the Lord. And you stand and you fight to the last man. I don't know if you folks have ever seen a child that's truly terrified before. But the most vivid image in my mind was of a little girl. She was probably about two and a half years of age, maybe three. She was a little waif of a thing. Her mother had been killed in a rebel attack. And when we found her, she was still holding onto the body of her dead mother. I remember reaching down and picking this little girl up and putting her in my wife Vicky's lap. And every part of her body's trembling. Her arms, her chest, her stomach, her thighs, her calves, everything is shaking. See, what this little girl understands that many of us do not is that in southern Sudan and northern Uganda, monsters are real, and they come to kill. And the heart that we have for these children is to be able to say to them, Honey, you lay your head down tonight, and you sleep, and you dream the dreams that a child is supposed to dream. Nobody's going to hurt you tonight, not on my watch. See, folks, one of the things that I realized in ministry, I did not go to Africa to be a soldier. Now, I am a soldier by trade, and guys, I'm a pretty effective soldier too. I've heard generals in the South Sudan Army talk about me. They'll say, this guy's an extremely serious soldier. He knows exactly what he's doing in battle, and I do. But 
I remember that in February of last year, I was in my office and I was on my computer, I was typing, I was trying to order three armored vehicles to send overseas. There's so many dangerous roads, I can't travel anywhere without a huge armed group of men. And I was typing on my computer and uh, I turned and I had a set of huge commentaries on my desk and my watch bumped it. Well, when my watch bumped it, it set off a beacon in my watch. My watch is designed with a beacon that if I get wounded and I cannot get up under my own strength, it will send a signal to my men to come and get me. And I just sat back in my chair and I said, Lord, this was never what I thought ministry was supposed to be. I did not come here to be a soldier. I came here to be a pastor. But see, I didn't, one of the things I realized, folks, is that I didn't choose this battle. The battle was chosen for me by Christ. And sometimes, you know, when you're a soldier, folks, you truly do see Scripture in a different light. You know, I think about King David when he wanted to build the temple of the Lord. And God sends the prophet Nathan to him. And Nathan says, David, it's good that it's in your heart to do this. But you're a man of war. You're a man of blood. You cannot build my temple. And folks, I suspect if I were to build a temple, try to attempt to build a temple for the Lord, that he would send a prophet to me and say, Wes, it's good that it's in your heart to do this. But you're a man of blood. You're a man of war. You cannot build my temple. We had an enemy patrol of over a thousand soldiers that was probing our village three years ago. We knew they were coming. And I had to deploy my men in the field all night long, every single night. We'd put them out there about seven. They wouldn't come in until about four in the morning. And my standing order was intercept them and kill them all. Don't let a single one of them get away. Now, if they surrender, will we take them prisoner? Of course we will. But folks, if they get away, they will come again for the women and children. And a lot of people don't understand that. See, we have this misconception in Christianity. A lot of people will say, well, what about the scripture that says, turn the other cheek? Well, turn the other cheek means take an offense for the gospel. It never meant to let them rape our wives, our daughters, sell them into sexual slavery, to burn children alive and to murder people. As men, we have a God-given right to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. We are supposed to be a wall between our families and the world. The spiritual leader, the provider, the protector. And we're living in a generation where we are raising a generation of effeminate men in America today. Men do not understand their roles anymore, guys. Not at all. I remember I was getting on an airplane in Fort Lauderdale a few years ago, and this NFL star gets on the airplane. I mean, this guy looks like a gladiator. He's just huge. But he's carrying a Louis Vuitton bag over his shoulder. And I looked at the guy and I said, wait a minute. I go, isn't that a purse? He goes, no, it's a bag. I said, well, my sister has the same one, and she calls it a purse. So I don't know what the difference is here, you know. But see, this is the generation we're in. When was it so important that men got into fashion? Why was that ever important to us, folks? Why would we ever care about something like that? As men, we were made for battle. We were made to be in the thick of it. But my point is, is folks, that I think about that young girl. And while I'm a soldier, I'm not unaware of how young women think about marriage. They anticipate it their whole lives. As little girls, they play, put little handkerchiefs on their head for the veil. They anticipate the day, the dress, the ceremony, the intimacy that she would share with her husband, the children that would be born, the life that they would have together, and the ministry. And all it would have taken for that young girl to have that was to say, I deny Christ. But instead she chose to die. And that would forever change my life.
See, I'm a man of war. I'm used to the fighting and the killing. She was a child. And if this young girl was willing to give so much for Jesus Christ, how much more should my life count? How much more should we be willing to give? See, we're missing something within our faith today. So many of us do not understand that you've been given this one precious life to serve Christ. And if you waste it, folks, you will not get another chance. I want to share with you about one of our chaplains in the last three weeks of his life. In 2014, May, we had a chaplain by the name of Peter Guy that was killed. And guys, you'll recognize him in a video. We're going to show you a video in a minute. You'll recognize it because he's got a large gap between his two upper front teeth. I don't know why, but in southern Sudan, in northern Uganda, if you have a large gap between your two upper front teeth, you're considered a very handsome man or a very good-looking woman. I don't know why. It's just part of their culture. So if you're not married and you have a gap, go to Sudan. You're going to do great over there. You know, Beauty is extremely different in Africa. If you're thin, they don't think you're good-looking. If you're overweight, they think you're great-looking. I told my wife, I said, you got to be careful. I said, I'm like the Fabio of our village out here. You know, it's just very different over here, you know. But guys, we got news that Peter had been killed at the front. We'd later find out that three of our men were killed that day. What happened was the enemy launched a massive offensive. They came down with 7,000 soldiers. Peter's unit was the first one that was scrambled. They were 700 men. They hit the enemy straight on while other units were being assembled. They fought three battles. 400 men had been killed. Our 300 men had been killed. There were 400 men left. There was an ominous feeling among all the men that everybody was going to die. And the ominous feeling was correct. They all were going to die. The only reason we know about what happened there is we had a fourth chaplain named Peter also, and he was sent out as a runner a couple days before the final battle, and he told us about the last three weeks of Peter's life. He said, Wes, in the last three weeks of Peter's life, he was really suffering. He said a month before he died, his wife left him for another man. And she said to him, I don't want to be in the ministry. I don't want to be married to a pastor. I want a better life. He goes, but the men in our unit did not know it. He goes, I would watch Peter. He would take his Bible. He would go out. He'd sit down with 20 men. He'd open up the Word of God. And 30 minutes later, all their heads would go down. He'd lead them to Christ. And then there'd be 10, and then 15, and then 5, and then another 20. And when he was absolutely exhausted, he would come back and he would suffer in silence with us. And he was delusioned. He, he, he could not wrap his mind around what had happened. He'd say, I, I, I don't understand. I loved her. I don't know what I did wrong. He just could not understand it. But then he would regain his strength, and he would go out and do it all over again. A week before he was killed, his sister called him and said, Peter, your wife has left you. You need to leave the military, come home, and take care of your children. And Peter responded and said, first of all, I am a soldier within the South Sudanese army. If I were to leave, that is desertion, which is punishable by firing squad. He said, but far beyond that, in the book of John, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go. He goes, I was chosen by God to be here at this particular place in time, and I will not leave my post. We were in communication with him just before the last battle. And the last transmission received, folks, is they said, we see a large army arrayed against us. We'll call you after this battle. The call never came. All 400 men were killed. We have never recovered the body of Peter or other two men. 
They lie amongst them 700 men whose bodies are no longer distinguishable by the ravages of war. But guys, I have often thought about when Peter crossed over. See, when he crossed over, he didn't just cross over by himself. He crossed over with 400 men that he led to Jesus Christ. Whatever the suffering, whatever the heartache, whatever the betrayal, he is a prince in the kingdom of God and his reward will be great. When we read the story of the 10 minus, it says God gives a minor to three different men. One bears 10, one bears five, one buries it in the ground. To the one that bears 10, he says, you're in charge of 10 cities. To the one that five, you're in charge of five cities. To the one that buries it in the ground, he says, take it away from him and give it to the one that has 10. They said, but sir, he already has 10. He goes, to whoever has it will be taken away. But to the one who has, more will be given. And guys, what this scripture is talking about is bearing fruit or winning souls for the kingdom of God. Now, it's strange to think that if we win 10 souls in this life, we might be in charge of 10 cities in the kingdom of God. I've actually done quite a bit of study on the scripture here. And many theologians truly believe that in the kingdom of God, we will reign over cities. Much like the British Empire, when they had colonies all over the world, like India, the Sudan, Uganda, Kenya, they would have a viceroy over the nation. We'll be viceroys over places in the kingdom of God. Is Peter over 400 cities, folks? I don't know. But what I do know is the Bible says, the eye is not seen, the ear is not heard, the mind cannot conceive the things that God has prepared for those that love him. We do not have the ability to understand what the treasures of heaven are like. It's far beyond our comprehension. You know, I've seen a lot of men die in my time. In the last moments of life, they all want the same thing. They just want to go home. If they're married, their last words are almost always, tell my wife I love her. I suspect for Peter that as he was dying, he still loved his wife. I suspect he was still praying for her. Lord, let me see her on the other side. Forgive her. And yet, folks, he did not let the trials of this world stop him from the fruit that was to be born. He could have been lost in a world of suffering, but he knew that God had commissioned him, appointed him, chosen him, set him aside. And he was about the father's business to the very end. You know, the interesting story, it says one man had a minus, is taken away and given the one has 10. The implication is that he is born again. He's actually saved. He's in the kingdom. But there's no reward. See, so often we hear they say, well, when we enter God's kingdom, there'll be no more sorrows and no more tears. God will wipe them away. And people always say, well, that's for the loved one that wasn't saved. I don't think it's what it is at all. I think it's when we see the lives that we could have had and we chose not to have that. That's where God's going to have to wash away their sorrows and tears. Realizing that our lives could have been so much more for Christ. And folks, one of the things I want to beseech you is a group of believers, you need to be bearing fruit. You need to start going out there and sharing your faith, inviting people to church every Sunday. Now, you don't have to hit them with the full gospel right up front. You let the Holy Spirit lead you. But we should look for every opportunity to invite people. There's a world out there that's dying in sin and is lost and is lonely. And if you would just go up to them and say, you know what? Before I was a Christian, I was lonely. But I found a home in Christ. 
Why don't you come to me in church on Sunday? Why don't you just come here and just give it a chance? And let the Holy Spirit work on them. It should not be a once a lifetime, a once a year. We should look for every opportunity to share our faith. Some of you will get to the other side and have nothing to show for it. Have you ever financially given to your home church where it's actually cost you anything? Have you ever served where it was inconvenient? See, many people serve in child care when their children are there because they want to keep an eye on them. But as soon as their children aren't in child care anymore, it's like, well, I'm paroled, I'm done. Folks, that's not service, that's your own interest. Have you ever shared your faith when you weren't sure if it was safe? Where I live, it's never safe. You have to count the cost to fall in Christ. But see, our love for Christ should be so passionate that this is not a problem with us. We love to share. I've said, asked many people, I said, Do you, have you ever shared your faith? They go, well, it's not my gift. I said, you know, that's interesting because the scripture says, go into the world and make disciples of all men unless it's not your gift. Only it doesn't say that, folks. And see, we need to ask ourselves, are we truly given to the things of the kingdom? The gospel is supposed to transform us. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it can be very difficult and sometimes scary for many people. But that what it means to die, that Christ might live. Your life no longer belongs to you. Paul could have not gone through all those beatings had he been holding on to his life. He was lost in a world of service. Guys, you think there's a point that the enemy hits bottom and it can't get any worse. There's no truth in that at all. I used to think there was a place that it had to stop, but rebels began to come in our areas and they would capture families, mother, father, five, six, seven children. And they started taking little girls, nine or 10 years old or a little boy, and they would give them a machete and say, cut the head off your mother. And if the child refused, they'd say, if you do not kill your mother, we're gonna kill your father, your mother, your brothers and sisters, and then we're gonna kill you. And mothers would beg their children to kill them. I have counseled many of these kids. There is no ability in English to tell you what that's like. We don't have words for it. We've not experienced it. See, all men will die someday. But some will die as knights for God's kingdom. What would be the mark of your life when you go home to be with the Lord? Will you have lived for him? Will you have loved him? Will you have served with a great passion? Or will you have been carried away by the cares of this world? You know, guys, in the midst of this, God called us to go into the Middle East. And guys, we're in a heavy civil war over there. For the last two years, we've been feeding 14,000 children every single day. We have flown in 37 metric tons of medical supplies to the Nubian army. The commanding general of the Nubian army flew to my compound to see me and said, Wes, you will never know how many lives you've saved. He said, your medicine touched over 270,000 lives. What our own government has failed to do, far-reaching ministries has accomplished. And right in the midst of this, God says, I want you to go into the Middle East and start rescuing believers. And I said, Lord, I, I don't know how I can do this. I, I literally only take off one week in a year. I take off the weekend before Christmas. Out of the 365 days a year, I take off less than 10 days. I work 12, 14-hour days. Now, I'm geared towards work, folks. I don't expect people to keep my schedule. 
But the Lord said, be obedient. So we started just sharing and we started raising support for pastors in the underground in Afghanistan and Pakistan, Syria and Iraq. We're now operating in seven of the 10 most dangerous countries in the world. Islamic countries. You know, I'd gone around the country the last couple of years telling people that we'd spent 500,000 in the Middle East rescuing believers, feeding the Syrian church. And April of last year, I just felt like I needed to check that. And I called my secretary. I said, Sherry, I've been telling people half a million dollars, but I, I want to make sure that I'm not exaggerating. I don't think that I am, but run a report for me on ghost operations. Ghost operations is the visible hand into the closed world of radical Islam. Well, she ran a report. She called me back. She goes, Wes, we didn't spend 500000 We spent $2.7 million, and now we're over three. How did we do it? I don't know. Just be faithful. And that's what I'm sharing with you. So often God wants to use you, but you look at it in of your own ability. You were never supposed to do that. It's through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the direction, the guidance. Guys, we have a DVD we're going to show you. First part is of the Syrian church. And then the second part is all the chaplains that we have lost in the service of Christ. It's hard to watch, but it's inspiring. But you'll recognize Peter Guy because of the large gap. Let's go ahead and show that, guys. When the war starts, many problems happen, and it's so difficult to continue the ministry. And we know some someday uh, the problems is come inside our homes, not just in our city or in our area. Uh, at that time, I speak to the leaders, and uh, we met together, and I said, as in Acts book, the believers when they have the persecuted most of them they go out of Jerusalem. If you want now to go out of your area or out of Syria to save your families, this is good if God gave you this to do. But uh, we, we must to know maybe one day the problems come to our families and to our life. And maybe we will lose our life one day. You know, when I left the room and after time, I turned back to see the decision of the leaders. I found 25 people. They stand there and they said, we will not leave. We will continue to serve God here in this area. And we will continue the ministry. If we are died, we will go to Jesus. And if we leave here, we will be with Jesus. And you know, but they asked me something to do. They said, if one of our team died, you know we are non-Christian background and no one will take care about our body if we killed or something happened to us. Uh, what we can do if this happened? For that, we buy this land and we build a graveyard. This graveyard for if anyone killed from our team, we can put him there. This is the first building of our ministry. I think it's first uh, happened in Raqqa city in Syria. They give the chance for the uh, Christian. They said to him, if you leave your Christianity now, you can be, uh, hold your life, or if not, we will kill you. This, this decision is, you, you know, it's must to, to, to take directly. And most of the uh, Christians said, no, 
we are ready to die for Jesus. And for that, they, uh, you, you can see many uh, pictures about the Christian. They put them in the class. And when they put them, many times they put in the uh, area, all the people can see them. To learn the people, if you will be Christian, this is your what will happen to you. Uh, and uh, most of the people, I thank God for these uh, heroes in the faith. They die for Jesus and they put them in the cross. You remember when I told you about the stories about the man who uh, with his son, and uh, they bring them and they ask them to leave uh, them faith in Jesus Christ, but the father said no and the son said no. And they asked the father, if you don't, uh, come to Islam now, we will, we will kill your son from your, your eyes. And after that, they cut the head of the son and they start to play football in his head, front of his father's eyes. This is something incredible. You cannot understand what's happened. But through all this bad news, you can see the hope is growing between these uh, uh, difficult and uh, bad people. You know, so sometimes many people ask me why, why you continue in the ministry in Syria, especially in this time in the war. The important thing for, uh, for our life to be in God willing. This is our call from God to, uh, to do the ministry in Syria. When we are inside the, the God willing, that means we are in the safe place. But if we are go out of God willing and go out of Syria, that means we are in the dangerous place. Maybe I, I can go like to Lebanon, to Jordan, to US, to, to anywhere and continue my life there. But that means I go out of God willing. That means I am in danger. The important things in our life not to be alive, but to be with Jesus willing. But if I am in, inside the dangerous, but in God willing, that means I am in the safe place. This is my belief, and I trust in Jesus. He will keep my life, and when he wants me to go to him, I am ready to do this.
From 2000 to 2013, 13 of our men were killed in the war. In the last three years, 41 of our men have lost their lives in the service of Christ. And the killing will continue to go on, folks. As believers, I don't think that a lot of us understand what it means to count the cost of following Christ. That, as I said, your life is not your own. You're lost in a world of service. You know, folks, I know that a lot of things I say that can somewhat be shocking to people, but... We're not trying to shock you. We're trying to make you understand the situation around the world. But one of the things that I've shared with the body of Christ is that I have never had a problem with having to take human life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't like killing. I never have and I never will. But when men come to murder women and children, rape them, cut them up, burn them alive, we're going to do exactly what it takes to stop them. And we're not apologetic about it at all. As believers... There should be this understanding that truly to, to follow Jesus is to die to oneself, that you're lost. You know, I do a lot of reading, and I was reading about the Night Templars, folks, and the Night Templars lived a thousand years ago. And many people have said, well, Wes, are you supporting the Catholic Church? I said, well, first of all, a thousand years ago, the Catholic Church was the church. The church has always been the church, folks. There's always been true believers and false believers, people that love Christ and people that misuse the ministry and misuse all that God has given them. These men did not have Bibles to read. They were told by the Pope and the priest what to believe. So to the best of their ability, they're trying to follow Christ. When you became a knight, you chose a life of celibacy. You were to never marry, to never know the love of a woman. You were sworn to Christ. Your job was to protect Christians on the road and the pilgrims to Jerusalem. See, Arab raiders were attacking back then, raping women, selling them into slavery, killing people. And the job of the knights were to protect him. When Saladin, the Islamic leader, was trying to retake over all of Israel, he was marching with his army. And 140 knights found out that he was coming, and they set out to intercept him. And they found him near Nazareth, because there was a natural spring there. But Saladin was not alone. He was with 7,000 Saracen soldiers. And a day's march behind was over 100,000 men that were following 
Some of the knights wanted to turn and leave, but there was a knight by the name of Gerard. And Gerard said, listen, men, we have been sworn to protect. We have been sworn to serve. And whether we live or we die, we will be with Christ. And the 140 knights attack 7,000 Saracen soldiers. They were utterly destroyed. The last knight to fall was a man by the name of James of Malise. And when everyone else had been killed, he mounted his horse and he charged a thousand Saracen soldiers by himself. The Saracens were so taken by his bravery, they begged him to surrender. They said, we will free you. We will let you go. We will not enslave you. We will not harm you. But he was sworn to protect. And unless they were willing to turn their army and leave, he fought until they killed him. The Islamic soldiers thought that they had killed a Christian saint because they had never seen this bravery before. What is unique about the story, folks, is this is not a part of Christian history. This is a part of Islamic history. See, all the Christians were dead. The Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they see your heavenly Father. We're supposed to have a love for Christ that supersedes all other things in our life. My wife, Vicki, has said to me on many occasions, she said, honey, you're the most determined man I have ever met in my life. Once you put your mind to something, there's nothing that will stop you. I said, Vicki, it's not that I'm so determined. It's that the scripture says, go into the world and make disciples of all men. And I do not consider that to be a suggestion. I consider it to be an order. And when my father gives me orders, my commanding officer, I'm going to obey them. And see, guys, we are supposed to be set aside, especially to this men in the room. You were made for battle. You were made to be a wall between your family and the world, the spiritual leader, the protector, the provider. And if you're not doing it, you need to change. Are you going to waste your life? You know, folks, I don't know what the greatest desire of your life is, but I will tell you what the greatest desire of mine is. I do not think that I'm going to live out my natural life. I suspect that at some point I will be killed in the South Sudan. And when I stand before a holy God someday and I look into his eyes for the first time, I want to hear him say, well done, son. Well done. I'm not interested in fame in this life. I had a movie producer, actually two of them, try to get me to do a movie. And these were big-time Hollywood producers. Many men have tried to get me to write a book. And I said, if the Lord ever tells me to, I will. But the Bible says that no flesh shall glory in the presence of God. And see, we should not be seeking our own glory or our own kingdom. We should be seeking God's glory and serving God's kingdom. Many men, it's their ministry, but it's not their ministry. It's God's ministry. It's God's kingdom. That's what we're supposed to serve. In closing this morning as you leave, I'm going to ask your pastor to come up here and close in just a moment. But in closing this morning as you leave, we want to give you an opportunity. And folks, first thing I want to say is that if you choose to do this, do not take it out of your church tithing. But we have taken on 700 pastors in the underground from Afghanistan to Pakistan and Taliban, Iraq and Syria to ISIS and Al-Qaeda to the areas of Hamas, Hezbollah, Syria, all these other places. And we're working very heavily in the underground to protect, relocate, and support these pastors and feed people. 
if you decide to support one of these men, it's $75 a month. And actually, all the money is going to other organizations that we're supporting. They're not our, it's not staying with us. We're sending it to four other organizations that are in the Middle East. They actually said to me, Wes, why would you raise money for us? I said, because I'm building God's kingdom, not mine. You'll never get an update other than what's on here. We can give you no more information on this. If they are found out, they will be executed. We have a division of our ministry. It's called Ghost Operations. We're very secretive about it. But you will find out on the other side what the fruit was. Then we have our chaplains. It's, by the way, folks, it's $75 to support one of these. Then we have our chaplains in the South Sudan Army. Most of my guys speak between four and seven languages. Some of them speak 13. All of them are in frontline combat situations right now serving Christ. If you'd like to support one of these, it's 75. And then we have our children of war. The castle that you saw up there, there's a picture of it on the back, opens in February of this coming year. 700 children will live there, be protected there, eat there, be taken care of. And it's $50 a month. We're actually putting up long-range thermal imaging cameras so we can spot the enemy five to ten miles out and intercept them and destroy them if they come for the kids. Now, we do not want you to take this out of your church tithing, and I want to be very clear. If you cannot afford to do this as a gift above and beyond, then do not do it. Your church needs your tithing, folks. And this is what I'm talking about. Have you ever done something that's ever cost you? It is an automatic debit. It comes out on the third of each month. You must fill out the form. You cannot pick these up and walk away. I will not know if they're financed. We do not put it on our website. Al-Qaeda follows our website. We've had two of our missionaries on Al-Qaeda kill sites. A kill site is where they put up the picture of your missionary, and it says kill on site. So we're extremely careful about this. What you do is you just fill out your name, address, and number, sign it at the bottom, pick out the ones, they're all numbered. Boydy checks work best, but you can use a debit or credit card. And if you don't have your information, folks, just fill it out, sign it, we'll call you later. But don't do it for guilt. Uh, if you decide to do all three of them, it's $200 a month. We're not asking you to do that. I'm just trying to make it clear. And do not take it out of your tithing. In closing this morning, I'm going to ask your pastor to come up, but I want to encourage you, don't miss it. You've got one life and only one. I don't know what it was like for Peter Guy when he crossed over, folks. But I know that when he stood in the presence of the Lord, he heard the words, well done. God bless you. You know, to be honest with you, it wouldn't bother me at all if you took it out of your tithe. I, the reason I asked uh, Wes to come is, you know, just following his ministry, you know, through the years. And then uh, he, he called me and just, we talked for probably about 10 minutes. And I was just uh, so blessed, just reminded of, you know, what the ministry really is. Um, I know it's... Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, you look around in the world today and, you know, not just in Bakersfield, but the parts of the world that uh, we're not even familiar with. And it's hard for us to even envision, you know, even imagine, you know, the things that they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. We have it so good here in the United States. And uh, I just kept thinking uh, all along, you know, when he was sharing was that, you know, where much is given, much is required. And uh, we have been given so much. And it's not that God's called us to necessarily 
go to those parts of the world. He's definitely called West to be there, but uh, we can definitely uh, play a role and make a difference in people's lives. And what I look forward to one day is uh, it's the joy, as he was sharing, of knowing that you know we can support these kind of ministries, and we don't get the you know some of the you know how some ministries you can get the a picture of the person and and we can take that kind of joy but we're going to be giving to ministry and to people that we won't get to meet until we get to heaven one day but what a try to envision this when he said you know i hasn't seen nor ear heard nor has it entered in the heart of man the things which god has prepared for them that love him imagine what it's going to be like one day when you walk through the the gates of heaven and you're embraced by somebody whose life you impacted through just your faithfulness and praying and giving and serving. And, um, I think those, uh, you talk about heaven being such a, uh, an amazing place and uh, a wonderful experience where we get to see the fullness of joy. And, uh, this is a ministry I totally believe in. I think, you know, as you've listened to it, you go, man, this is, uh, I told you he was a man's man, um, that this is a guy that, uh, we can get behind as a church. And so just be prayerful. I, I so appreciate uh, the way that Wes handles the ministry. Um, it isn't a pressure situation. He's just here to inform. And his hope is that God would just move our hearts the way that God would choose. And so there's no, there's no pressure. There's no guilt, you know, giving here. It's just be prayerful about how the Lord would use you. But as a church, let's remember as you, as you go into your closet and you pray every day, you know, add Wes and Vicki and the ministry of far reaching ministries, you know, to your prayers, because you can see they're making a tremendous difference in the world and they, they covet, you know, our prayers and uh, they need our support. And so I want to encourage you before you go, stop by the table. You can also go on the far reaching ministries website as well, and you can sign up there and uh, you can do a one-time gift if it's not feasible today, or you can do quarterly giving. There's all kinds of ways that you can support that ministry there. But uh, the biggest thing is just uh, to appreciate their lives today. Um, he's a Marine, but you know what? You can still hug him. He's, he's still, he's a lovable guy. So let's just pray for them. And thank you for, for being here today. I know that uh, getting up an extra hour early, I, I pray that the Lord just really spoke to you and blessed you today. Father God, we thank you so much for far-reaching ministries. We thank you for Wes and Vicki and, uh, Lord, their lives and their partnership in the gospel. Uh, Lord, we're challenged. Uh, Lord, I know I was humbled just listening to him. Um, there's so many people in our own city, uh, Lord, that need to be reached. And, uh, Lord, if we don't reach them, who will? And just remind us afresh today that our lives, they're not our own, that when we came to you, that we... We gave you our, our lives, and Lord, we want to go where you lead us to go. And so I pray for us today, myself and our congregation, that, Lord, you would just anoint us for this week. Uh, Lord, there's a, there's a people, there's a place, there's ministry that needs to be done. That, uh, Lord, you would fill us with all boldness. Uh, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to live uh, a bold life for you. And we do thank you for... West today and pray that Lord you would just bless far-reaching ministries through the ministries here at Calvary Chapel we love to partner with people who Lord are advancing your kingdom and your causes we just pray your blessings over them and uh, Lord above everything Lord today as we go we pray that Lord Jesus that you would be glorified in our lives Lord help us to live for you Lord 
And we just uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for dying for us, Lord. Uh, again, no greater love has any man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And Lord, thank you. We are so, so blessed by you. We give you this day and pray that, uh, again, be magnified, Lord, this week. Be glorified in each of our lives, we pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus. And we all agreed saying amen. Amen. I'll invite you to stand to your feet. We'll send you out uh, with some song. And Wes will be right outside. He'd love to, to meet and greet you before uh, uh, you guys take off today. But have a wonderful day in Jesus.